What's up, y'all? Howdy. How does y'all sound on me? You think I can? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be practicing that and trying that. I'm going to need some affirmation and some, some feedback. Did anyone notice that Milo is sitting on the couch? Were you sitting on the couch while you were playing your instrument? Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Good job, Milo. All right, y'all. I almost said guys. I'm trying to say y'all instead of guys. I'm just trying. A little experiment. We'll see how it goes. So, y'all, get your Bibles out. Uh, my name is Ronnie. If I haven't, if I haven't met you, um, the director of Salt Company. The thing that we do here on Thursday nights, if this is one of your first times, is we basically like we worship Jesus in song and we open up the Bible and we hear a message from God's Word. And so we're going to be in Daniel chapter three tonight, continuing our series. Your God is too small. So Daniel chapter three. While you're turning there, just even like this whole series goes along with the title, right? We've been trying to enlarge our view of God. Not as if we could actually like make him bigger, but we're trying to like open up this book and see him as he really is. So each week we've looked at like a different Old Testament story that is just like this encounter where God breaks in in this way and he reveals his holiness, his love, his power, his providence. Last week we saw that he like revealed his name. So God breaking in and revealing that like he's so much bigger than we ever thought and then looking at the implication for our lives. And every week in some way or another, we've basically been hovering around this question without really addressing it. And this is the question. Who is the God that you worship? Okay, your God is too small. It's all been basically about this question, like who is the God that you actually worship? Is it the God of the Bible as he's revealed in Scripture, or is it like a smaller, distorted version of him? Or is it no God at all? Is it what the Bible would call an idol, a man-made God who is no God at all? So the question isn't do you worship, it's, it's who do you worship? And worship is like this overarching question over all of our lives. Almost everything that we do is actually about worship. When somebody asks you the question when you go home, like, what are you going to do with your life? You can't answer that question without also sneaking in of like, this is what I esteem as most valuable. This is what I worship. This is what I want to give my life to. All of life is ultimately about worship. And even people that deny God can't deny that human beings are just worshipers by nature. There was this, this uh, famous uh, atheist writer and philosopher named David Foster Wallace who, you know, he denies the existence of God. He's an atheist. But nonetheless, he couldn't deny that people have this natural tendency to worship. He gave a famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2003. So imagine he's got like this room of college graduates. He's an atheist, but then this is what he says is he's trying to like send them out into the world. He says this, here's something that's a little weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type being to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. So this is worship according to somebody who would would deny God, but he cannot deny that human beings have like this natural instinct towards worship. He describes worship as this like natural and inevitable human reality. He says there's no such thing as not worshiping, especially in like the day-to-day trenches of life. He explains worship as this thing of how we tap into meaning. He's saying that what our heart basically does is it looks at some object and says, like, I need to mean something, I need to matter. And so we attach ourselves to these things. We worship. This is what we're talking about when we talk about wanting to have a career or a job that's ultimately going to fulfill us and give us a sense of purpose. We're talking about worship. 
He alludes to the fact that when we worship, we're basically seeking something. We're seeking satisfaction, pleasure, peace, rest. But then he says money, possessions, they eventually leave us addicted and empty. They're never enough. And one of the striking things that he points out in here, if you notice it, is he basically says these, these things that we worship tend to not deliver on what they're promising. Some of the most common things people worship, money, things, beauty, body, sex, they're not able to deliver on their promises and they end up, in his words, eating us alive. He says, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and aging start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally greet you. So no matter what, all these like lowercase g gods always end up turning on us in the end. And so this is the main thing that he's saying here. He's saying that our only choice is who we will worship. It's not a choice of your worship. Your only choice that you have is who is it that you're going to worship. And so this quote, it basically sets up this idea that there's a war going on for your worship. Your day-to-day life, you are living inside of a war, competing voices, competing objects, vying for your attention, vying for your worship. And the only question that you have, the only choice you have, is who will you worship? Daniel 3 is a story in the Bible that confronts us with this same question. So turn there, Daniel chapter 3, and actually flip back one page to chapter 1, because I just want to give you the context of what's going on here. If you look at the very first verse in the book, this is what it says. It kind of sets up the context for tonight. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. So that means he came in, this invading Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes into Jerusalem and he besieges the city. He conquers God's people. So a foreign nation has come in and they got this king called Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So this isn't just a political thing. This isn't just an economic thing. This is like a spiritual thing. It's being set up as this battle of the gods. Whose God is more powerful? Whose God is worthy of our worship? But even notice in verse 2, it says like the Lord handed uh, the king of Judah over. So right off the bat, you see that God is actually like walking into this fight willingly. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, that is, the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so here's what's going on here. The people of Israel, they're in captivity, right? The Babylonians are not just trying to hold them captive, but they're actually trying to transform them completely. The strategy is to take some of the young and talented youth from Israel and put them through this like three-year Babylonian training program. You see that? So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's got these four young men from Judah, Daniel, Hannah, Hananiah, Mahel, Azariah, the tribe of Judah. They get selected for this three-year formation process. They get given new names. And make no mistake, the goal of this formation process is to actually get them to like lose their national identity, lose their identity as the people of God. This isn't just social, this is spiritual. This isn't just about giving them new names, but actually giving them new gods to worship. And so they're faced with this choice. 
If you're like some of these, these young people in this situation, you're faced with a choice. You just witnessed like the most powerful military force of your day come into your country, besiege your people. You've been taken to live in like this land of Babylon and you know that your life is never going to be the same. You're fearing for like these other people that you know, but you've been accepted and brought in because of your potential and your promise. And you have this question, do you conform to the ways of Babylon, to their way of life and their worship, or do you stand up against this incredible power? Do you remain faithful to your people and to your God? They're in a war for their worship. Who do you bow down to, God or idols? This sets up the confrontation that we're going to see in chapter 3. Okay, so now turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, they're going to be confronted with this question in like this really memorable way of asking the question of who will they worship. And so what I want to do tonight in Daniel chapter 3 as we read the story is basically help you do two things. Number one, I want you to see the war that you are in, the war for your worship. And the second thing that I want to happen is I want there to be a similar confrontation for all of us that are in this room of having to answer that question, who is it that you're going to worship? So chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so this is a, like a 90-foot tall statue that this king, he builds of himself. Okay, he sets it up because he wants to be worshipped. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is a worship service, right? You notice just like all the elements, they're gathering these people together to ascribe value and worth and honor and praise to the image of this King Nebuchadnezzar. And look at verse 4. And a herald proclaimed aloud. There's like preaching at this event. They're proclaiming, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, I always wondered, I'm trying to figure out, like, what, does anyone know what a trigon is? I feel bad for the person who's like, the horn, okay, I'm listening. The pipe, I'm, okay, I'm listening. The trigon, like what, what? Does anybody know what that is? What is like, this, this sound is going to go off and they're going to have no idea. The harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So when they hear the music, they have to fall down and worship. Verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the rules. Worship the image or be killed. This is the option that Daniel and his friends have on the table. Sacrifice everything about who they are, including their relationship with God, or become a sacrifice themselves. Be like literally thrown into the fire as a sacrifice to this man-made, set-up God. They're caught between the call of an idol, the call of a false God. Who they, like, it's like so obvious that this like man created this giant statue and said worship it like the most obvious idol you could ever see and they're caught between that call and then the call of, of their god they're caught in a war for their worship and this is the same war 
that is going on in all of our lives today, but in different forms. Man-made images, false gods, calling out for our allegiance, commanding us to bow down to them or suffer the consequences. So here's just a couple examples. The first one would be like the idol of sex. Okay? And now, don't come at me for, for bringing this up. It was in the quote, actually, that David Foster Wallace said. And you could argue that I put the quote in here, too. But we'll just say that he brought it up. So this is what he says. He says, sexual allure. This is like one of the, he identifies this as someone who denies God. He says, sex, sexual allure is like this like false God that doesn't work. It's a lowercase g, God. And you think about the idol of sex in our culture, like so much that can be said, I just want to say like a couple simple things. One is that there is like an image that our society has created, that we have all been a part of creating, of the person who is truly alive, the person who is truly happy, the person who is free to express themselves sexually and experience their sexual desire in any way that is unhindered. Like there's like this image that is being put up, okay? And our choice is to either bow down to that image or face the consequences. And that image could look slightly differently. That's kind of like the, the thing about it is that it's, it's basically whatever you want it to be, but the key is that it's, it's like this sexual allure, whatever is pleasing to you, and nobody else can tell you anything about it. So there's plenty of images to go around on the internet, through media, walking around campus, all the imaginary things we can come up in our mind, but there is like this, this idol of sexuality put out in front of us. We must bow down and worship it. And whenever there's an opportunity for it, we either bow down or we face the consequences of, of missing out being left out, being ostracized, like whatever it may be. And by and large, Christian or not Christian, we have like fallen down and worshipped this idol of sexuality. And so many of us have like believed this lie from Satan, from like this false God, that God is the enemy of sexuality. That the Bible's vision, the Bible's teaching, God's design for sexuality is oppressive and restrictive. And then if you follow that vision, you're going to end up in like this fiery furnace of missing out on something in your life. But guys, what I want to tell you tonight is God is not the enemy of sexuality. God created sexuality. David Foster Wallace would say that making sexuality God is the enemy of sexuality. Elevating sex to this place of ultimate meaning and purpose, elevating it to the level of God, will eat you alive. For some of you, the idol is self. Okay, so we got sexuality, we got self. The false god you're tempted to worship is yourself. And you might not have like the ability to build a 90-foot statue of yourself, but the thing, like the phone we hold in our pocket has actually like a far greater reach. Like we have better technology than Nebuchadnezzar had to actually put it up an image of ourselves and broadcast it across the world so that we can be worshipped. And we could go on and on listing all these different types of idols. He, he named a bunch in his quote just like money, Sex, self, and if we choose not to bow down to these man-made objects of worship, the consequences hang over our head. Look at verse 8. Continue on in the story. This is like, I call this the threat of the gods. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. 
They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the babcubbing, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So this is how idols work, right? They make promises that if you worship them, you will have life, and they threaten to destroy you if you don't. This is what Foster Walls was saying when he said, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And notice just like the outrage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not worshiping that God. They say, oh king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we face a similar outrage in our world today when we don't bow down to the false gods that are being erected all around us. The threat is, is worship or die. And notice Nebuchadnezzar's accusation against God. He says, Who, who's the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? He has this small view of the God of Israel. This is exactly how, how idols talk to us, isn't it? They minimize God and they elevate themselves. This is exactly what Satan did originally in the Garden of Eden. He said, don't trust God. Trust me. Trust yourself. An example of this that comes to mind is like the idol of success. Thinking about school and career. We hear a lot of these voices in this area of our lives. And so let me say this up front. They're like, I'm all for school and career. I love work. I kind of enjoyed, enjoyed school. You guys are at like a different level than I was. I think you should take academics and career very seriously. I actually love like the work ethic that you guys have here and the discipline that you have. And the Bible has a ton to say about not being lazy and about actually like stewarding the things that God has given you. The Bible has a beauti- beautiful vision for work, for school, for education, for all those different types of things. But there is a massive difference between striving to succeed as a way of worshiping God and striving to succeed as God himself, as if success was God. And here's how you can tell the difference. When school or career starts to make ultimate statements over your life like this, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and no one will be able to save you from me. I will destroy you. Have any of you heard voices in your head that sound something like that as it relates to school and career? It comes up as like this fear in your head that if you stop sacrificing, if you stop giving absolutely everything that you have to school, that all will be lost. It's like this thing that demands so much of you, but it's ready to turn on you in an instant if you screw up. And you can give everything to school so you get the GPA, but in the end, if you don't get the GPA, all is lost. Or if you do get the GPA and you kind of look back and wonder if the sacrifice was worth it. I have a friend named Chris that he called me this week and it was exactly about this. And so he was a, a friend of mine in college, a teammate on the football team, roommate with me. And he sacrificed a ton to be like a successful college football player, ended up going to be in the NFL, won, won a Super Bowl. And like along his, his seven-year career, a lot of our conversations were just around this tension of how much he was sacrificing to be successful, but how it kind of always just kept working out. But there was always just this underlying angst that he had of wondering if the sacrifice was worth it, especially as it related to his, his family and his little kids that were being born. So he called me the other day about a career decision because he's retired from 
the NFL now, but he's been coaching, uh, he's a strength coach at Wake Forest University, working like crazy hours, like leaving at four in the morning, getting back at, at nine o'clock at night, not really seeing his family. He knows that like he's missing out. He's sacrificing these valuable years for his marriage, for his kids, but he's being successful. And so he, ha- he has just like this, this drive and he knows what it takes, but he calls me because he's got an opportunity to get out and, and get a job that isn't related to football anymore. And as much as he wants to like, get off of the ladder, as much as he like sees it very clearly that he's, he's, he's not only missing out on like his family, but also his relationship with God, he told me, he's like, I hear this, I hear this voice in my head, and sometimes it comes from like my bosses in this profession, and sometimes I don't even know where it comes from. But it's basically this voice saying, like, you can't get out. This is all that you've ever known. What if you don't like that other job? What if you're not as passionate about it as you are about football? And even though he feels like this deep angst in his soul, like this very clear picture of what he is having to sacrifice for this game, he just like hears this call calling him back. And and as he said that, this is basically what I said. I told him on the phone that anything that calls out for us to sacrifice our relationship with God or other like God-given priorities like being a husband and a father, it must be the voice of a false god and not God himself. That has to be the voice of the idol calling you back, calling you to sacrifice more and more and never totally delivering. This is what like the false god of success loves to do. Just inviting us further along but never delivering on its promises. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they find themselves in the middle of this war for their worship. Forsake God to worship the image or be thrown into the fire. And the question before them is, what are they going to do? Who are they going to worship? And this is the question that is over all of us in the room tonight. And none of us are going to leave this room tonight without having to like make that decision. Who is it that you are going to worship? So let's look at how they make their choice. Verse 16. They're addressing Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. Wow. I think everyone, this is a famous story for a reason. Like everyone that, that sees this moment, like sees the, the threats that they were under. Like they're, sta- they're standing next to the fiery furnace at this point. They can feel its heat. They see the consequences. They know how easy it would be to just bend their knees and start to bow down. And we get so inspired and confronted by what they did. It makes us wonder things of like, if I was in a country that was being more, like Christianity was more persecuted and I had a gun to my head, like would I deny Jesus or not? Like would I choose to worship Jesus or not? And the resolve of this man is like absolutely amazing. But the thing about it is it's not because they're amazing. Like their, their resolve and their ability to make that choice to worship God is not because of something inside of them. It's because of something that they saw in God. It's because of who they saw God to be. It's because of what they believed about him. They have this vision and this experience of God that is so big and so glorious. Like imagine as they stand there and they face the emperor, they face the king, but they see God as way bigger. And they say, oh king, oh king, we can't, we cannot, like, like they almost just like set him aside. And even the threat of death by incineration is not going to get them to stop worshiping him. 
Foster Wallace in his quote, he says like the compelling reason for worshiping some type of God or spiritual thing is that he's, he's clearly seen that idols don't work. And that's true. But the compelling reason for these men is actually something different. They're compelled by the size of the God that they serve. They look, look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And just that, that statement in verse 16 he will save us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. It contains like two compelling reasons why you tonight should choose to worship the God of the Bible for the rest of your life. Tonight. Okay, so reason number one, only God can satisfy. This is what they saw. They saw a God who was the only one who could satisfy their souls. As they looked at Nebuchadnezzar, they were looking at a man that had it all. Like he was, he was at the very top. He was at the top of his nation and his nation was at the top of the world. He had all of the power. You can imagine what his ambitions had been for his whole life and he now had the respect, the fear, and the worship of the people. But what is he doing in this chapter? He's building an image of himself because he needs more. It wasn't enough. As much as he had, he needs to build this, this ridiculous 90-foot tall statue and get all these instruments together to get people to worship it because it was not enough. This man was not satisfied with what he had. This is the lie of idols. It's like you get to the very top and then you just need more and he's furious if he doesn't get it. Because lowercase g gods, they're too small to satisfy our souls. Whether it's money or sex or power or success or yourself, you will never be able to get enough. You will always need more. It will get you addicted and it will leave you hanging. This is what they do. This is what they saw when they looked at Nebuchadnezzar. And they saw that their God was totally different than this. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Daniel, he must be different. Because listen, they're willing to give up absolutely everything but not him. Nebuchadnezzar has everything of earthly value. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, I will give up my entire life, but I will not give up worshiping my God. I will not give him up. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us. He's able, but if not, we're still not going to worship you. We will not make that trade. Even if our God doesn't deliver us from death, we're not going to worship your gods because if we die, we get our God forever. We're so satisfied in worshiping him. There's nothing that could threaten to take that away from us in exchange for him, even life itself. This is the thing that like, the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you have Jesus, you have him now and forever. You have what is most valuable. In Romans 8, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul was captivated by this God that satisfies, and only God is valuable enough to sacrifice your whole life for because it means you get him. And that's what they were faced with in the furnace. They saw a God who can truly satisfy their souls forever, a God that delivers on his promises. Every other God is too small to satisfy. There's another compelling reason why they chose to worship the God, and it's that only God can save. Only God can save. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar, he's filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who had just declared that, hey, do what you will, but we're not going to reject our God. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men, bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments, they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, listen, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it kills the guards. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So if you just imagine being them for a second, you've just made like this, this bold declaration of your faith and worship of God. And then as you're being led into the furnace, like bound, ready to be thrown, and you feel the heat coming on you, you see that like the men that are carrying you in there, they just get incinerated alive. And then you get thrown to your death and you realize that this is it. And then verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So these men, they went into the fire, perfectly content and satisfied in God if he doesn't deliver, but full of faith that he was able, and then he does, miraculously. Remember, God had actually willingly let all of this happen. He was setting up for like this battle of the gods moment. And the test of the fiery furnace was this all along. Whose God is going to win? Whose God will win? Everything in this story is trying to show us the might and the size and the strength of God to save those who trust in him and the futility of idols. Despite the threats that they make, they're no match for the Almighty. And this, this so shocks Nebuchadnezzar. Just seconds before, he had said this. He said, who's the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? That's what he said to them before they went into the fire. Who is your God? And now what is he saying? Who is this fourth guy in the fire? Hey, Nebuch or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like, you, got, you worship this God. Like, get out of here. Who is, who is your God? So who is this mysterious person? Who is this mysterious fourth person in the fire? The man who looks like a son of the gods. The man whose very presence somehow protects them from being harmed. The fire wasn't defective, right? It was seven times hotter than usual. However you do that. However you do that. I don't even know how you do that, but it's seven times hotter, and it's so hot that it burns up the guards. The fire is not defective, but the one in the fire is so powerful that he's able to set them free and allow them to walk around in the flames. And Nebuchadnezzar finally says something true. He finally gets something right when he says, this guy looks like a son of the gods. Christians have looked back on this passage, this text, for, for centuries and said, this must have been a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the way that Jesus saves these men here gives us a picture, it's like a foreshadowing of the way that he saves us in this room. The dramatic tension of this story is worship or be destroyed, right? It's a war for their worship. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he threatened anybody who doesn't worship him would be destroyed by the fire. Remember that? It's been very clear. Anybody who does not worship me is going to be destroyed by the fire, right? But who are the people in this story that actually get destroyed by the fire? Who are the ones that get destroyed by the fire? The people that listen to Nebuchadnezzar, not the people that worship God. The mighty men of his army, he selects these mighty men of his army and they are the ones that get destroyed by the fire. The people who are saved from the fire are the ones who worship God, not idols. The men who choose to worship God are saved from the fire. The men who choose to worship the image are killed by the fire. This is exposing the lie that we've been talking about of idols, the lie that they're telling us. The promise of idols is to save us from the furnace. All the while, they are actually leading us to the furnace. Remember, every other god you choose to worship will eventually eat you alive. It will destroy you. All idols, all lowercase g gods, they promise life, but they ultimately lead to death. This is a strategy. This is a lie as old as the Garden of Eden. This is what Satan does. And they lead to death because they lead us away from the author of life. They lead us away from the true God. The fiery furnace of Daniel 3 is not where worshipers of God go. It's where people who bow down to idols go. This is the reality of hell. This is the reality of hell. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody in the New Testament. He uses the imagery and the language of these flames that go up forever and ever and ever. And for all people whose worship is directed towards idols, their life is headed for hell. Because you go where your God goes. You go where your God goes. If your worship is directed towards idols, you'll be like the servants of Nebuchadnezzar who get incinerated because they obeyed his voice. This is where he was leading them all along. And when it comes to worship, guys, we, we worship what we want. Like we worship what we desire. We worship what we see as beautiful and worthy of praise. And in the end, we all get what we want. We all get what we said we wanted by our worship. That's what your worship is doing. It's telling, it's declaring to the world. It's declaring to God, this is what I want. Either God in heaven or idols in hell. And the threat of idols is nothing compared to the wrath of God against our idolatry. Nothing compared. The bad news of this story that we need to be faced with is that we actually have much more in common with the people that bow down to idols than with these brave men that don't. Like, that is, that is my, my story. That is, that is your story in this room. We are not the faithful worshipers of God. We are the ones who have conformed. We are the ones who have given in. We are the ones who have heard the music and seen the image, whatever it is for you, whatever it's been at different stages of your life, and we have bowed down. We have believed the lie, and we deserve to go where our idols are leading us. But there's good news in this story. There's good news in the Bible story. And Jesus is at the center of this fire. He's at the center of the good news. And here it is. Jesus, he goes into the fire with them. He's willing to get in the fire with them. And listen, he's willing to get into the fire for you. At the cross, Jesus is like incinerated by the wrath of God on sin. He stands in the place of idolaters. The difference between the men who get incinerated by the fire and the men who don't is Jesus. Who is Jesus with? Who is Jesus united to by faith and trust? And at the cross, he stands in the place of all of us who worship idols. He shields us from the wrath of God just like he shielded them 
from the fire. We who deserve to be killed can stand before God. We can walk. The hair on our heads is not singed. Our clocks are not our clocks. Our cloaks are not our, our clocks too. Nothing will happen to your clock. There's no smell of fire upon us. So we should all worship God because only Jesus saves. Idols do not save. Nebuchadnezzar, listen, just listen. Nebuchadnezzar and every idol that you're tempted to worship basically says this, worship me or I'll kill you. Worship me or I'll kill you. You know what Jesus says? Worship me. I was killed for you. I was killed. Worship me. Look, look, what I, look at the sacrifice I made for you. Worship me. Jesus came to win the war for your worship. He wants your heart. The war for worship that like you are caught in the middle of, Jesus came for the very reason of winning that. He's calling out to you. And Daniel 3 just screams, there is no comparison. Like in the battle of the gods, there is no comparison between the true God of the Bible and these like silly man-made gods that we so easily bow down and worship. Jesus should win the war for your worship because every other God does not satisfy. Every other God does not truly save. This is what the story is pressing on us. And this is a choice that we have to make tonight in this room. The idols that are calling out your name saying, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The voice of that, like that favorite idol of yours that is calling out to you, this is what you say. You say, my God is Jesus. The only one worth dying for. The only one that died for me. The only one who satisfies and saves. I worship him. So everybody worships. Everybody, everybody in this room, everybody who's not in this room. And the only question is, who will you worship? And the answer to that question, obviously, it affects you in like a profound way, right? But it doesn't only affect you. It affects everyone around you. In response to the radical worship of these men, their worship is like hotter than the flames of the furnace. In response to that, look at how the story ends. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Notice the total reversal of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's still very violent. <laughs> it's like still like the only thing he knows how to do is like rip people limb from limb. But notice like the, how he has shifted. He went from saying, hey, I'm going to kill everyone who does not bow down to this image, everyone who doesn't worship me. What does he say now? I'm going to kill everyone who does not bow down and worship like the, this God of Israel. Because he, like he is the one. Their worship totally transforms his worship. This man who is so egocentric, who is so into himself, who, is, who has, he like is the epitome, we're using him as an illustration of idols here. Like he, is, he has like become his own idol and he is now actually seeing the God who is mighty to save. He is actually now seeing that his God was way too small. Their worship changed his worship. What could happen here? We're in like the basement of this music venue slash nightclub worshiping Jesus. There's like this little group of us in here and there's a lot of people out there. What could happen if the worship that happens in this room week to week started to leak out of these walls? 
If the worship that happens in this room actually started to happen like in your, your daily life, if you resolve to worship a God and forsake all of your small gods, if you took your idols and you threw them into the furnace, what could happen outside of this room if our passion was hotter than the fiery threats of our idols? If we were so satisfied in him that we would give up everything rather than give up him, if we saw how he saved us and we lived like the invincible people that we are, what would the people around us think and see and what would they be able to do? Maybe the enemies of God would start singing worship songs like Nebuchadnezzar does right here. Look at this, chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then he sings this song. The enemy of God says this, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's pray together right now. Let's pray together that the worship in this room would break out of this room and compel a university and a city that worships so much other than Jesus to join us in worshiping our God. Let's pray that and then let's actually sing and worship our God together. So pray with me. Father, we are just, we are humbled by the, the truth that is in the Bible that shows us and exposes how our lives have been full of, of like false worship. Exposes all the things that we've run after besides you. God, we are just exposed. But God, we're lifted up because we see like our idols exposed in front of us and we see you calling us forward. So Jesus, as we sing here in a minute, I pray that the, like the words that we've chosen to sing tonight, Holy Spirit, you just empower our singing of those words. That we would sing against the powers of darkness. We would sing against the lies of the enemy. That like we would, we would resolve together in this room right now to worship you. God, give us, give us an experience of worship right now that wouldn't just stay in this room, but that would break out of this room. God, I pray for, for this city and this campus. We pray together for this city and this campus. God, it starts in our hearts. We don't want it to just stay in our hearts. We want it to break out of these walls. We want the people around us to look at our lives, look at the things that we are doing that are saying something about your value and your worth. And would we see the enemies of God become the worshipers of God because they see our worship. God, so we offer our worship to you right now, to the God who is far greater than anyone can comprehend or imagine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.